Most of us have probably had the experience of overhearing a group of people who are talking about someone else. Maybe it's been at work and we hear people in another office or a cube. Maybe it's at school in the cafeteria. Maybe it's out on a sidewalk or when you're in a restaurant at another table. Maybe it's in church. But you see those people huddled together and without even hearing the words, you know they're talking about someone else. And then as the conversation escalates, the volume goes up and you begin to hear more and more of what they have to say. Until eventually you can pretty much hear every single word. And maybe they're saying really good things about this person, but most of the time that's not the case. Most of the time it's somewhere between nitpicky and vicious. And as the conversation progresses, have you noticed that it begins to tell you a lot more about the people who are doing the talking than it does about the person they're talking about? You begin to see their worldview, their values, their politics, their priorities, their personalities. You begin to see whether they're kind or cruel, whether they're heady, gossipy, snippy, or mean. You begin to learn about their agendas, their status, their own self-image, their own self-esteem. And so whatever they say about the person they're talking about, that may or may not be true. You don't really have a way to evaluate that. But these words and what they say about them, that gets to the heart of their essence, their very being. Well, 2,500 years ago, God overheard two sets of conversations about him. One set told the truth about him. One set told lies. Both sets of conversations revealed the heart condition of the people talking about him. And so God addresses both groups through his messenger Malachi in this sixth and final debate between God and the people of Israel found in the book of Malachi, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, and carrying on to chapter 4, verse 3. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The issue of the day was the presence and prosperity of the arrogant and the evildoer. Some things have not changed in 2,500 years. Like most of us, the Israelites were outraged when people were getting away with endless bad behavior. Like them, we are outraged when we see the dishonest and the unethical prosper, when we we see the rich and the famous seem to be able to lawyer up and get away with all kinds of shameful abuses and atrocities and antics. Like them, we want to know, how can this be permitted? And the reassurance that we are given in this passage, as in so many others in the Bible, is that we must trust God to deal with evil in his own timing. There are three central truths that we need to understand this morning from reading this passage. And the first is that the way we view God's handling of evil, right, the way we react to it, the opinion we have about how God is running the world, matters to us. It affects us. It affects every aspect of our relationship with God. The seemingly unjust prosperity of the arrogant and the evil was the talk of the town in ancient Jerusalem. How can a good and just God permit such evildoers to prosper? And people weren't just asking this question. They are jumping to the conclusion. They're becoming embittered at God about this. They are blaming him and saying he is actively promoting the well-being of evildoers. They ask, why won't he intervene to stop it? And we ask the same questions. Because as we look at just survey some of the monstrous evil of the past century, we have to ask, as we consider the Holocaust, as we consider the murderous communist regimes of the Soviet Union and China and North Korea and Cambodia, as we consider ethnic cleansing and genocide of the past few decades, as we look around today at Al-Qaeda and ISIS in the world, it is natural to wonder where God is amidst the horror. But how we answer this question, how we view God, affects us tremendously. This question is known in philosophy and theology as the problem of evil. It is used by some, both today and thousands of years ago, to argue that God doesn't exist, or that he is weak, or that he is evil, or that he simply doesn't care. 2,500 years ago, many of these Israelites were using these arguments, these experiences, to justify giving up on God's law and walking away from him altogether. This is the wrong reaction, the wrong response, the wrong view of the problem of evil. This is the first group of people that God overhears. He describes them in verses 13 to 15. 
your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Right? So they're not just questioning. It's important to draw this distinction. They're not just asking, why is evil going on? They have become embittered. They are saying harsh things. They are blaming God. They are impugning his reputation and his character, saying that he is causing, that he is endorsing, that he is blessing evil. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God, that it's a waste of time. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. They, they've gone so far that they're saying clearly God is just, he is in favor of the arrogant. He blesses them. But evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So again, they've not just asked questions about the injustice that they see. They have become embittered towards God. They have complained against him and about him and to him, and he has heard every word. They have argued that it is a waste of time to follow God because evildoers not only get wealthy, they do it by intentionally breaking God's rules, and he doesn't seem to care to enforce them. They get away with it time and time again, so it seems pointless to try and do the right thing, so they say we're not going to do it anymore. Suffice it to say, God does not appreciate their complaining. He does not appreciate this attitude, this bitterness. Because one, it fundamentally misunderstands the teaching of Scripture, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Scripture that these people had available to them but it directly insults his perfectly just and faithful nature. Right? They're not just asking about why evil exists. They are now saying that God himself is promoting evil, that God himself is blessing evil. And so as we look at this passage and we talk about the consequences of what we need to first understand from Malachi's message is that our response, our treatment of God, our, our view of him, in response to the problem of evil, is just like that group of people talking about someone. It speaks more about us and the maturity of our faith and the depth of our knowledge of Scripture than it does about God. You see, at the same time, there was a second group of people in Israel whose conversation God also overheard. And these people saw the same problems and responded in a different way. They revered the Lord. They respected and honored the Lord. They trusted in the Lord and in his promises implicitly, even though it was difficult to do so. They understood that Scripture consistently teaches that God permits evil to exist for a time. And it feels like a long time but that he guarantees he will sort it out in a final judgment in which the arrogant and the evildoers will receive what they so richly deserve. We need to understand that these faithful believers, they were not fools. They're not, they weren't sticking their head in the sand. They weren't blind to the evil going on around them. But they trusted the Lord to handle it in his own way. And they were willing to wait patiently for him to deal with it in his own timing. They did not give up on the Lord. Verses 16 and 17 describe these faithful few. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We don't know exactly what they said. Their words are not being preserved for us the way the the words of the first group were. But based on the passage, we can presume that it is the opposite of the first group. We can assume that they are affirming the promises of Scripture and the nature of the holy and just and righteous God because... Malachi describes them as people who feared the Lord. Remember, to fear the Lord means to revere him, to respect him, to be in awe of him. And esteemed his name. Right? They respected and held high his name. And we always need to remember that when the, the Bible speaks of God's name, it is speaking of his qualities, his essence, his being. So for people like this, People who can see the injustice in the world. And they're not blind to it. But they can hold firm to their faith in God. Hold firm to the promises of Scripture. Hold firm to the waiting patiently for His justice, which is yet to come. God promises a wonderful reward. Being written essentially into His hall of fame. His book of remembrance. We are assured that God will honor steadfast faith even in the face of a fallen world, and reward us as his own people, his treasured possession. So clearly, we want to be counted amongst this second group of people, amongst the God-fearers, whose attitude and understanding of the Lord and his plan enables us to wait patiently for his resolution of the problem of evil in his timing, not ours. This leads us to a second clear truth in this passage, that the problem of evil will be resolved on the day of judgment. Those who insulted the Lord were complaining that he made no visible distinction at that point in time between those who tried to do good and those who were trying to do evil. So to their limited view, if God wasn't dealing with evil right at that moment, it meant that he didn't care. That he didn't care about victims. He didn't care about those who tried to do right. He didn't care about punishing those who did wrong. And God said, well, that's your timing, not mine. He said, in my timing, the distinction will become crystal clear at the final judgment. Verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God is well aware of who the righteous are and who the wicked are. He knows with absolute certainty and has perfect memory. And the day will come when he will make it obvious to everyone. But the point of verse 18, right, that that day will come, is that for right now, for a time, we're going to see injustice. 
We're going to see the guilty prosper. We're going to see the innocent suffer. Now, we have a role in trying to alleviate that, but that's a sermon for another day. For now, we're going to see that. And we, are going to, we may be tempted to think that God is blind or that God is uncaring, but He is not. He is simply working on His own timetable, which is very different from ours. There are some good reasons for that being different, reasons we should be grateful for. And so we need to wait patiently for His timetable. God knows all, God sees all, and at His final judgment, He will clearly distinguish between the faithful who followed His way in the face of persistent injustice and those who viewed the Lord with contempt. And for that latter group, fiery judgment awaits. Now, this is super unpopular to talk about. Right? Nobody likes to think about fiery judgment. And yet, it is critical if we are to understand God's nature, to understand the nature of the solution to the problem of evil, to understand why there is injustice in the world. It is important to understand this because it is all through the pages of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end, there will be a judgment in fire. Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. As I said, the teaching of Scripture is consistent. We could stay for an extra 30 minutes or an hour and cite lots of places that talk about it, Old Testament and New Testament. I will give you one Example from the New Testament, Matthew 3.12 says, Jesus will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, that's believers, into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the imagery of Malachi 4.1. The evildoers will be cut down like stalks of wheat, which leaves, you cut it as low as you can, you, right, you want as much of the plant you can, and that leaves this little bit of of useless stock very close to the ground. That's the stubble. Then that will be burned to the ground, and it will be utterly destroyed. No ability to regrow. There is neither root nor branch. We've changed plants in the metaphor here, but we're going to go with it. Utter destruction. Nothing will survive God's fiery judgment. There will be on that day no more doubting about God's justice or his wisdom or his attitude towards evil because it's all going to be very clear. There will be nothing left of the proud and the evil and the arrogant. Right? The imagery he gives us here is that they will be trampled. They will be ash, trampled underfoot by the righteous. It's in verse 3. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. That answers the problem of evil. Now, it would be very tempting for us to sit back and relax in complacency and just say, well, I'm glad that's solved. All those bad guys are going to get their due. Right? We love a movie with a clean ending where the bad guys get it. But there's one problem with that. One reason we cannot just sit back in complacency about this, and is that if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are all 
arrogant at times. That we are all people who have committed evil at some point in our lives. Maybe it's just a little bit. Maybe it's a whole lot. The specific quantity is irrelevant in this case because we all deserve God's judgment and wrath. We are all part of the problem of evil. We're all amongst those God is permitting to continue to exist. For each of us, there are things that we have done that we should not have done. There are things we have said that we should never have let come out of our mouth. There are things that we have thought, things that we have looked at, things that we have lusted after that we never should have. On the other hand, there are things we have not done that we should have. Things that we should have said, but we didn't. There are evils that we, there are evils that we have stood by and permitted to happen. There are good things we should have enabled, and we didn't. Why is this? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And in its natural condition, I certainly know that's true of mine. We cannot help ourselves. We, we cannot help but sin even when we try our hardest. We say, today I'm going to do better than yesterday. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to do that thing again. We can't help it. We just keep doing it. We deserve the fiery judgment that's described in Malachi. We deserve to be destroyed, root and branch, burned like stubble. Paul summarizes our situation really well in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So rather than sitting back complacently and and wringing our hands self-righteously about all that arrogance and evil and injustice in the world that's being permitted to exist, we need to recognize the arrogance and evil and injustice that exists in our own hearts. Because it turns out that even as we are crying out for justice and crying out for God to solve the big picture problem of evil, we each have a personal problem of evil. And the final truth I want to discuss this morning is that our personal problem of evil is resolved by faith in Jesus Christ. But Scripture is painfully clear that we cannot solve our personal problem of evil on our own. Remember, Paul said we were dead in our sins. Dead people can't help themselves. No matter what we try, no matter how much we incentivize ourselves, no matter how much we punish ourselves afterwards, no matter how many self-help programs we get involved in, we cannot help but sin and fall short of God's perfect and glorious standard for sin-free living. And God knows this. Because despite the grumbling of those complainers in Malachi, God is indeed all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. And so before time even began, God knew what needed to be done. And so when the time was right, he sent Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, out of eternity and into this world, taking on a 
a human nature and, and walking amongst the people of Israel. And he preached and he taught. And he worked miracles that demonstrated his power over sickness and spirits and nature and death in order to prove he is indeed God in the flesh. And then he chose to suffer and die a terrible and lonely death on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sin. To turn aside that fiery wrath of God that's described in Malachi. And so Paul continues in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, this is God's real nature. Right? We have the group that's questioning him, questioning his goodness. Well, this is God's real nature. He is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, this is his real nature, love for us, even though we don't deserve it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the grace of God, which is undeserved, that is the definition of the word grace, yet freely given to all who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is what saves us from the fiery judgment described in Malachi and elsewhere in the Bible. It is this faith in Christ that cleanses our hearts, that frees us of the guilt and the sin and the shame, that guarantees our sins will be forgiven forever when we ask God for forgiveness. It is faith in Jesus Christ that instantly transforms us, pulls us out of the group who are the arrogant and the evildoers, and moves us over to the group of those who esteem and revere the name of the Lord. But we do have to choose that faith. Each person must choose this faith for themselves. I know most people here have. It is not something you can borrow from your parents. It is not something your parents can force on you. It is not something you can get from a boss or a coworker or a friend or a relative. It is Yours, you must choose to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the solution for our personal problem of evil. It also points us forward to God's ultimate answer to the problem of evil, because if we have made that choice, we also know what awaits those who do not. And so there must be urgency in our hearts. There must be distress and fear for those who have not yet made this choice. There must be urgency about sharing this truth with our friends, with our family, with our, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with those who cross our paths. It is only faith in Christ that enables us to fear and esteem the Lord, to be in that second group of people in the passage this morning. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means, without the faith in Christ, we do not have peace with God. Our hearts are in conflict with Him. We are working an agenda against His. Even if we don't think we're at war with God, we are not in peace. We cannot be amongst those who esteem His name, who revere Him. As we look back at Malachi from this side of the cross, we realize that it is only this peace with God through Christ that enables us to be written into the book of remembrance in verse 16. That makes us God's treasured possession in verse 17. 
If you were here with us this summer as we went through 1 Peter, we talked about how believers in Jesus Christ are promised to be God's treasured possession, 1 Peter 2.9. And I want to just take a moment and think about our own most treasured possessions. The things we most love. Maybe it's an engagement ring. Maybe it's a wedding band. Maybe it's the memento of a loved one we've lost. A reminder of the glory days of our past. Whatever it is we most treasure. We are that and more to the Lord of the universe. Thanks to the work of Jesus Christ. No matter what the world says about us, no matter what other kids at school say about us, no matter what people at work think about us, no matter what our family even might say about us, it is not true. We are the treasured possession of the Lord of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is tremendously good news. What a joy it is to realize we are a treasured possession in the hands of God. He promises in verse 17, they shall be mine, and we are. You get goosebumps just thinking about that. The more you think about it, the more amazing it is. The Lord of the universe cares so much about us. He not only, he he takes possession of us and he treasures us. Right, And he's not talking about some abstract people. He's talking about you and me. Any who has believed in Jesus Christ, anyone whose heart has been transformed by the Lord, anyone who's been reborn in Christ. So as followers of Jesus Christ, this final judgment holds no fear or dread. Our fate is not fire. Rather, it is what God promised in Malachi 4.2. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. And you should go out leaping like calves from the stall, which I'm so grateful for that video. Right? Just think of how excited those cows were after months of being in the barn during the winter, and all of a sudden they're out and they're jumping around all clumsy and goofy looking, but so glad to be out and free. And that's going to be us someday. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, the future holds healing, holds righteousness, and a joy that is so full and overflowing that we don't care how stupid we're going to look jumping around like those cows. Leaping and dancing and praising God with the energy of a calf. Running and jumping vigorously with just endless energy and enthusiasm for life everlasting. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have the solution to our problem of evil who has transformed our hearts and changed our lives. Lord, if there are any here who have not yet trusted in him as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would make that choice, that they would allow themselves to be transformed through grace. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be like this second group of people, that having faith in you, we would have patience, that we would trust in your promises and in your word, to trust in your nature, That no matter what the evil is we see, no matter what our role is in trying to mitigate that evil, we understand that in the big scheme of things, you will resolve it all in your time. 
Help us, Lord, to have boldness and urgency to reach out to those who are lost still, that they might be saved from this. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The call this morning, first and foremost, is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because it is only His sacrifice on the cross that removes guilt and shame forever. It is only faith in Christ that can transform our deceitful hearts. That can solve our personal problem of evil and write our name in God's book of remembrance. So even if you have been coming to church your whole life, if you realize you have not truly believed with your heart and soul that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead, carrying our sin with Him to the cross, I would urge you to make that choice this morning. If that is something you have come to realize and believe this morning or in recent weeks, then as we sing, I invite you to come to the front so that we can celebrate this good news together. For those of you who are believers and who've been worshiping with us for some time but are not yet formally a member of Lakers Baptist Church, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith this morning. To say that this is your piece of ministry in Northern Virginia. That this is your church family. And if you're ready to make that decision, then as we, as we sing, I invite you to come to the front of the church as well. And for everyone else, I would encourage you to pray, whether it's in your seats or kneeling up front here, to begin by praising God for His grace and mercy that solves your personal problem of evil. To pray for patience and strength in the presence of evil in the world. And to pray for boldness to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and broken world that faces a terrible judgment.